Good morning, church. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn it to Psalm 90. Uh, as you do, please stand. We'll be reading from Psalm 90, mainly verses 9 through 12. So I'll start at verse 9. Okay, Psalm 90, verse 9. For all our days... Pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would teach us to number our days and give us a heart of wisdom as we look at your word this morning. Holy Spirit, only you can enlighten our hearts, and I pray that for all of us, our hearts would be enlightened, enlivened, encouraged by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. By show of hands, how many of you are familiar with the expression, the goat? Not the animal, but the expression, the goat. Okay, the goat is an acronym. It is normally found on the mouths of millennials, and the acronym stands for greatest of all time, the goat. Uh, and it's normally used in some sort of fierce debate over which athlete, which sport team is the best of the best, you know. So, uh, but some are pretty undisputed. For instance, think of swimming, Olympic swimming. The GOAT, the greatest of all time, there's no question, it is Michael Phelps, right. Some are more hotly disputed, for instance, basketball, you know. I think the greatest of all time is Michael Jordan. I just, I think he is. Some would say LeBron, maybe a few would say Kobe, but I think, I think Michael's the greatest of all time. When it comes to men's tennis, there is one goat, there's one, and his name is Roger Federer. He is the best. Nadal fans, there's grace for you. But Roger, Roger Federer is the goat, the greatest of all time, and uh, my wife knows how much I love Roger Federer, so for our one-year anniversary, she actually bought us tickets to go see Roger Federer play in Chicago. And so we drove to Chicago, I think 12 hours. Uh, we drove to see one match on Saturday, and we got to see him play. And have you ever seen the goat of something do something in person? It was it was amazing, and so I saw Roger Federer play tennis, and we knew driving out that we would have to drive back through, uh, through the night because we had to be at church on Sunday morning, and so we did. So we you know, drove with almost no, no sleep straight through the night. I got sick. I'm still recovering, catching up on sleep, but it was totally worth it to see the goat of tennis. Okay, now when it comes to the Bible... You know, the early church, they didn't have NBA or 
ATP players to debate. Maybe the early church debated which prophets, who was the goat of Old Testament prophets. And I think it would be easy to argue that the goat of Old Testament prophets, the greatest of all time, is Moses. Now, someone will say Jesus. And yes, Jesus is the greatest of all time. To be clear, he is. He's actually the lamb of God, not technically the goat. But, uh, but, uh, but when it comes just to human prophets, I think it's Moses. And really quick, I want to make a case why. Um, if you notice, Psalm 90 actually starts with a subtitle. And that subtitle is, A Prayer of Moses, The Man of God. I mean, what an accolade. The Message Bible actually translates that, A Prayer of Moses, the Goat, in case you're wondering. Um, the, a Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. Here are three reasons, okay? I'm going I'm to say three reasons why Moses is probably the Goat of Old Testament uh, prophets. So the first is this. Moses witnessed some of the most powerful signs and wonders of any person in, in the Old Testament, maybe even in the Bible. Think of the burning bush. Moses saw a bush that was burning, and he has a conversation with God. And, and in that conversation, God reveals to Moses his divine name, something he had never done with any other person, Yahweh, right? He revealed that to Moses. And then there's the, the plagues. There's the exodus. And I think it was maybe last week, Adam spoke about God parting the Red Sea and, and crashing the waters on top of Pharaoh and his army. I mean, imagine seeing that. Or, and you keep going, Moses, he sees water come out of a rock. He's fed with bread from heaven for 40 years. He saw plagues. He saw miracles. Maybe no one saw more things than Moses did. That's one reason why he might be the goat. A second reason why Moses might be the greatest of all time. Think about this. Moses was the pastor of the largest congregation ever shepherd, pastor, leader. I'm saying he was the pastor of the largest congregation ever. The largest church in the United States is Lakewood Church in Houston. It's pastored by Joel Osteen. They see about 52,000 people per week. That's pretty steep. But how big was Moses' church? Numbers 146 says that all the men 20 years old and upward who, who came out of Egypt, it totaled 603,550. Now that's just the men and just the ones older than 20. So I think it's generally true that about as many men are born as women. So double that, okay, and you get 1.2 million people. And that's just those who are 20 years old and upward. This is the flock that Moses is leading. That's so staggering, you're like, I can't even fathom it. That would be everybody in Union County and Mecklenburg County combined. So Monroe, Indian Trail, all of Charlotte combined. If only you could see it, though. Well, actually, I have a picture. Uh, maybe we can throw this up real quick. On June 3, 1973, Billy Graham preached to a crowd of 1.1 million people. Slightly less than 1.2 million. This is in Seoul, South Korea. There's another slide yeah, this is the crowd that Moses was speaking to when, when he was speaking to Israel and without a microphone. That's like Michael Huff's worst nightmare. <laughs> I mean, that is huge. Not only was Moses pastoring this many people, but think about this. 
Moses was pastoring this many people in his 80s until he was 120 years old. And not only that, he, he was pastoring his people during a 40-year crisis. According to Numbers 14, Moses led, led the Israelites for 40 years while they were dying because of their faith. No one would enter into the promised land except for Caleb and Joshua. That means all of that number of people you saw would have died in 40 years as Moses was pastoring them. That's 30,000 people a year. I mean, when you just consider the sheer size of the congregation that he was leading, Moses is maybe the greatest, not only pastor, maybe the greatest leader in human history. And clearly only with the help of a divine God could he do that. But, okay, last, last thing about Moses. Moses, while he was pastoring a nation, also had time to write a book. You may have heard of it. It's called the Pentateuch. And I think it's safe to say the Pentateuch is probably the most influential book of all time. Uh, probably written around 1446 B.C. It's been in scroll or in print ever since. And it's been read for nearly 3,400 years. But not only consider, you know, Moses was a great author, but consider the, the theologian that Moses must have been to know the things that he knew. To have God reveal to him the creation account in Genesis. Think, think of what a theologian he must have been. There's even one verse that says, that uh, it's Exodus 33:11. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man does to his friend. I mean, think about that. Moses literally had conversations with God. Wouldn't it be cool? You know, wouldn't it be cool just to be a, a fly on the wall? Wouldn't it be cool just to hear one of those conversations or have some sort of glimpse into the devotional life of this leader, of this, of this person? Well, friends, that is what we find in Psalm 90. A prayer, this is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. So I want to ask the question this morning, what, what, do we, what can we learn? What can we learn from Psalm 90, from Moses. If you look at Psalm 90, really quick, if you, if you notice, we've been kind of reading it the whole, the whole uh, morning. It was our, our call to worship. But Psalm 90 begins with a passage that many of us are familiar with. Verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. So it starts, the psalm starts with this, this beautiful praise, adoration. I mean, you get the idea of Moses saying, God, you are, you're before everything and you're, you're bigger than everything. Before the mountains, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And then the next verse says, you return man to dust. It's, there's, a, there's a contrast of extremes. He goes from you are God, and then you return man to dust. And there's, there's, kind, of a, there's kind of a change, right? Because he's, he's praying, you have been our dwelling place. You have been our home. But now it suddenly turns to you return man to dust. And, and say, return, O children of man. We know that Moses wrote Genesis, and so the illusion is definitely clear. He's referring to Genesis 3.15. He's referring to the curse that was placed on humanity when God said to Adam, you are dust, to dust you will return. 
And then the psalm goes on. It talks a little about the, the, the finiteness of human life compared to the infiniteness of God. So that's how it begins. Look how it ends. Verse 12. It ends with a, a passionate petition. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. It's almost urgent. Te- teach us. And then look, look at all the petitions he makes. Teach us. Return. Have pity. Satisfy us. Make us glad. Let your work be shown. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Establish the work of our hands. He opens with this worship of God and who he is. There's this interesting kind of tension. And then we see that it concludes with this petition. And so my question for us is, what is the heart of this text? What is the, what is the core of this conversation that Moses is having with God? I think that the real, the real core of it is, is verse 11. And I have this slide, Walt. Moses poses a question. He says, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Who considers? This this is the only question in the psalm. It may be rhetorical, but it's, it's such a powerful question and so relevant to Moses, a man who is watching his congregation die, a man who is enduring countless numerous events of of God's wrath and judgment upon his people. He's asking the question, who considers your wrath? Have we, have we ever considered God's wrath? This morning, that's what I would like to do. I would like to just simply do what this psalm asks of us and consider the wrath of of God. Um, I don't think every Sunday we should preach about the wrath of God. I, after I had written the sermon, actually I said, Marguerite, I think my first sermon is on the wrath of God. Is that a bad idea? <laughs> uh, she's like, I, I don't know if I would have done that, but, but, uh, but I think the wrath of God is an important topic, and it's, it's, it's so important to Moses. So I want us to consider it. I want us to consider the wrath of God. And I'm trying to keep it simple. Here's my whole sermon in one sentence, okay? So if you need to take a nap, you can do it after the slide. Uh, here's, here's my sermon in one sentence. Considering God's wrath will lead us to gospel gratitude and godly urgency without worldly anxiety. Considering God's wrath, it will lead us to gospel gratitude and godly urgency but without worldly anxiety. So, let's consider the, let's consider the wrath of God. Um, wrath. I asked uh, the youth this morning, actually in Sunday school, hey, what do you guys think the word wrath means? And they hit it head on. They said anger. Um, they, they said indignation. Now, some of them are using their phones, so I don't know if it counts. But, uh, but according to Webster's, wrath is strong, vengeful anger or indignation. Retributory punishment for an offense or crime. Divine chastisement. 
God has wrath for sin, but his wrath is very different from ours because we, in our sin, our, our wrath is often unmerited. Our wrath is sometimes selfish. It's excessive. But the Bible says clearly that God is a God of wrath and God is a perfect God of wrath. The first thing we have to acknowledge, however uncomfortable it may be, is that God is not embarrassed about being a God of wrath. The Bible clearly says that he is a God who has wrath. Consider Psalm 711. It says God is a righteous judge and God feels indignation every day. King James says God is angry with the wicked every day. It's hard not to read passages in the Old Testament like Isaiah 13, talking about the the day of the Lord coming cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners. And then God says, I, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. You couldn't, you couldn't read the Old Testament and miss this. Now, some people, maybe you've met some people who will say, well, God of the Old Testament, right, he's, he's angry. He, maybe he's angry, but Jesus, Jesus is just a God of love. Jesus is full of toleration. Jesus doesn't have wrath for sin. Passages in the New Testament would say otherwise. And I'm not saying these passages to try to argue that God is not a God of love. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that if you were just to hand someone the Gospel of Matthew and ask them to read it, and you didn't, you didn't prep them for the wrath of God, then when they get to Matthew 25, when Jesus sits on his throne, and he has the, the sheep on his right, and he has the goats on his left, different type of goat, by the way, than the ones we mentioned, but he has the goats on his left, and the sheep are those who are saved, and who have repented and believed in him, and, and the goats are those who have rejected him and have rebelled against him. And Jesus says to those on his right, he says, Come, you blessed by my Father. He says, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. But then in verse 44, he looks to his left, and he says, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus says that. When Paul writes about Jesus in 2 Thessalonians, he says that Jesus will come in flaming fire. This is 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And then really the verse that's the defeater to this argument, there's a difference between God and the Old and New Testament, is Jude verse 5, which we have a slide Did you know the Bible actually says that Jesus is the God of Moses? I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus did that. This is what Jude 5 says. The Bible is crystal clear that God is a God who has wrath. How does this lead us to gospel gospel gratitude? In some ways, you know, This just makes us sad and scared. We know that God has perfect wrath for sin, and we know that we have sin, and so it scares us. But the reason this is important, the reason this is so important is because there is 
There is no gospel without the wrath of God. The gospel is actually totally inconceivable apart from God's wrath. What is the gospel? What is the message of the gospel? Many of you would would say, I would probably say, something like there is salvation in Jesus Christ for all who repent and believe. Something along those lines. Salvation. But why do we need salvation? And what do we need to be saved from? R.C. Sproul says, when we talk about salvation biblically, we have to be careful to state that from which we are ultimately saved. The Apostle Paul does just that for us in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 when he says, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Ultimately, Jesus died to save us from the wrath of God. He says, therefore, Christ's supreme achievement on the cross is that he placated the wrath of God. You see, the gospel, the gospel is that something actually happened on that cross. Jesus did not merely die a physical death. His physical suffering was immense. Jesus did not merely die a symbolic death. It's not that he did something brave and noble, and so God said, I will now sweep away wrath under the rug. No, what the Bible teaches is that more than physical, Jesus experienced a spiritual suffering on the cross. Isaiah 53, it says that his his soul was made an offering for guilt, the very soul of God. You see, the gospel is that God placed all of the wrath that we deserve Onto Jesus. I mean, think about it. I imagine, I imagine a waterfall. If we could quantify God's wrath somehow, I imagine Niagara Falls. All the wrath of God that deserved to fall onto you and me. And the gospel is that Jesus, like a sponge, he absorbed all of it for us. All of the suffering that we should experience for an eternity in hell. The full wrath of God forever and ever. Jesus experienced in an instant on the cross. And then he said, it is finished. Now the question is, how could he do that? How how could one sponge, (laughs) how could one man bear the full eternal wrath of God in an instant? It doesn't make sense. Well, Jesus was not merely a man. You see, Jesus had to be a man to pay the price for human sin. But only God himself, only the Son of God, could bear the full wrath of God in our place. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. That's the gospel. Anything less is missing it. The reason this is important, though, is is because the Bible actually defines God's love in the context of his wrath. Did you know that? The Bible actually defines God's love in the context of his wrath. So I have a slide here. This is 1 John 4.10. God is love. Many of us have heard that verse and interpreted in different ways. Right after that follows verse 10, which says this. 
in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So this is love defined. This is love. Definition of love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. I asked the youth, what does that mean this morning? And um, I think one got it uh, pretty good. Um, and then another got it perfectly, and then I saw they were on their phone. So um, <laughs> Webster says this, that propitiation means to gain or regain the favor or goodwill of, to appease or conciliate. Biblically, it means to appease or satisfy divine wrath. That's what propitiation means, to, to appease or satisfy divine wrath. You see, the reason this is important is because it shows us it shows us how much God loved us to send his son to that fate. It shows us how much Jesus loved us to endure that suffering. Can you, ima- can you imagine if we didn't know the wrath that God has for sin, would we ever have any clue how much God loves us? Um, Marguerite, uh, here's a great story. So Marguerite and I are newly married and... Uh, I guess we're a year and some change now, so not still newly married. But earlier this spring, we hadn't even completed one year of marriage. Uh, Marguerite calls me, and she, uh, she says, you're not going to believe what just happened. And so I'm like, okay, what happened? And she's like, someone just proposed to me. We're already married at this point. <laughs> so I only have one question. So what was your answer? <laughs> um, Marguerite says, uh, um, she says, let me explain. So she was driving down 74, and an 18-wheeler pulls up beside her at an intersection and starts shouting at her, okay? And um, Marguerite, I love how she tells the story. She's like, oh, and this has happened before, and it was because I had a flat tire. So I was kind of, and the guy was trying to shout something at her, and she wasn't getting it. Um, and then he finally uh, said, will you marry me? <laughs> Just a guy in an 18-wheeler asking my wife to marry him, you know, at an intersection. And so Marguerite says that she just held up her hand and, and pointed. And the guy was like, oh, okay, I see. But um, uh, I'm just like, that is so bizarre. And it would, of course it would happen to my wife. But um, the funny thing about that is, isn't it just a little silly to, to think did this guy actually think that he was going to, to convince my wife to marry him when he had never demonstrated his love for her, never communicated his love for her at all? Just to mean a total shot in the dark, like, well, I'm at an intersection and I'm not married, so I'll go for it. Thank goodness, thank goodness, that the gospel is not like that. And we, when we share the gospel and we invite people to receive Jesus, we don't have to be like that. We can explain to them, God has demonstrated his love for you. While you are still a sinner, Christ died for you. Do you know what that means, that he actually died for you on the cross? 
God has made every effort to communicate his, his love to us. And when we consider the wrath of God, we are considering truly the price he was willing to pay to make us his own and to love us and to marry us. Considering God's wrath should lead us to a deep and true gratitude for the gospel. Okay, that's my first point, and my, final, my next two points are much shorter, so don't worry. But considering God's wrath should lead us to gospel gratitude, I think considering God's wrath should also lead us to a godly urgency. Consider what Moses prayed. Moses prays in verse 12, So teach us to number our days. You know, Moses, Moses had considered God's wrath. He had considered the power of his anger. His response is, teach us to number our days. Moses was a man on a mission. Moses was a man who was urgent about something. I think that, I think that Moses, it says in Hebrews 11, it says, Moses, he was willing to, to scorn the, the treasures of Egypt to suffer. He chose rather to suffer with the children of God. Because he was looking to the reward. Christ is his reward is what Hebrews says. And I don't think Moses knew everything about, you know, substitutionary atonement. I don't know if he understood everything about the cross. But Jesus did say, if you believed in Moses, you'd believe in me because he wrote of me. So Moses knew something. I think Moses knew his mission for the church in that day. Specifically, I think Moses was trying to set before the Israelites life and death in Deuteronomy 30, right before they walk into the promised land. He says, I'm setting before you life and death, so choose life. Don't choose death. Moses knew his mission. Question for us. Church, do we know our mission? Do we know it? There's a great book I would commend to you. It's called What is the Mission of the Church, uh, written by Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert. And there is a quote that is just so good. He, he says, There is something worse than death, and there is something better than human flourishing. There is something worse than death, and there is something better than human flourishing. Human suffering and death, these things are the curse, and we do not love them. We endure them. They are not good. And I do not make light of them when I say that they do not compare at all to eternal death, to, to eternal suffering. And I'm also convinced that human flourishing, as great as it is, to see someone flourish and grow and, and step into their element and be healthy, human flourishing is nothing compared to what awaits for, for those of us in Christ the very presence of God forever. If everything we have said is, is true, if everything we have said is true about God's wrath, and if everything we have said is true about God's love, then what this means is that people are in far greater danger than we dare to fathom. People are in, in far greater danger than we dare to fathom. And if what we have said is true about the gospel and about God's love for us and Jesus' love for us, then people are more deeply and fully loved than we could ever hope. People are more loved than we could, we could ever hope. I'll make a quote by J. Gresham Machen. 
he was asked, what is the responsibility of the church in the new age? And he, he says this, the responsibility of the church in the new age is the same as its responsibility in every age. It is to testify that this world is lost in sin, that the span of human life, no, all the length of human history is an infinitesimal island in the awful depths of eternity, that there is a mysterious, holy, living God, creator of all, upholder of all, infinitely beyond all, that he has revealed himself to us in his word and offered us communion with himself through Jesus Christ the Lord, that there is salvation in no other for individuals or for nations, save this, that this salvation is full and free and that whoever possesses it has for himself and for all others to, may, to whom he may be the instrument of bringing it a treasure compared with which all the kingdoms of the earth, no, all the wonders of the starry heavens are as the dust of the street. An unpopular message it is. An impractical message we are told. But it is the message of the Christian church. Neglect it and you will have destruction. Heed it and you will have life. Finally, considering the wrath of God also leads us to have a godly urgency without worldly anxiety. I'm trying to qualify this. We, yes, we should have gratitude for the gospel when we consider what Jesus did. Yes, we should have a godly urgency about the souls of men and, and our own souls, but, but this is not the same as worldly anxiety. John 3.16 and John 3.36 are true, and we really should not, cannot have one without the other. John 3.16 is, For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And John 3.36, the last verse in that chapter, says, Whoever believes in the Son has life. Whoever does not obey the Son, the wrath of God remains on him. And so what I want to say is, if you have not believed and obeyed Jesus for salvation, if you've not repented and trusted in him, please do. <laughs> please do. But I also want to say, if you have, if you have repented and believed in Jesus, God loves you so much, more than you could, you could ever imagine. You know, in, there's an interesting passage in Matthew 10 where Jesus pulls his disciples together and he says, have no fear, have no fear. What I tell you in secret, you shout from the rooftops, you know. Don't, don't, feel the, don't fear those who kill the body and after that can't do anything else. But then Jesus, Jesus says, rather, fear him. Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I've always thought that was an interesting passage. And in fact, the, the little subheading in the ESV Bible said, it's called have no fear. But then you read the verse 28 and it says, fear him. <laughs> so it's like, Am I supposed to fear or not to fear? Well, I think what the Bible is saying is that a right and reverent fear of God, a true understanding of his wrath for sin, we should all have that. As Christians, we should have that. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Fear him. But when we fear God, we have no logical reason to fear man. We don't. I think that when we 
consider the wrath of God, it will, it will lead us to read Romans 8 differently. When we think of the wrath of God that Jesus endured, it'll lead us to, to read this differently. What, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I don't, I don't know what you are facing this morning. I, I don't know what your, the troubles of today are. But I want you to know that God loves you. And this love is not contingent upon what you do or the, the works that you do. You could never earn the salvation that God fully offers. This love cannot grow because it is full and it cannot shrink because it is everlasting. And Jesus is coming back soon. And he will have wrath for those who do not know him and do not obey the gospel. But for those of us who are in Christ, as it says in the end of 2 Thessalonians, he has not destined us for wrath. He has not. He has no more wrath for us. He has destined us for salvation through Jesus. And here's the closing thought. If God loves us, and if the love of God is powerful enough to quench the flames of hell for us, then it is more than sufficient for us to face the troubles of today. Amen? Let's pray.